0: You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 60. This is part two in our series on the Dark Ages of Church History, Controversies About Christ. In the last episode, we introduced the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages of Church History, talking about that time period from about 4th century to 15th century, in other words, from the reign of Constantine to the Reformation era. And uh, we talked about how That time period is often overlooked and looked down upon, but if you examine it, it's over a thousand years of church history, there's a lot going on there and a lot to examine because what we see in that history explains a lot about why things are the way that they are today. So, we just got into an introduction, talked a little bit about Constantine and his reign and asked the question, what happened to the church during that time period and we could say the same thing to that question that we could say in any age, which is basically the church cannot be destroyed. It is a permanent, eternal fixture in heaven. And wherever the gospel is preached and heard and believed and obeyed, the church exists. And so I believe that it existed during that time period. And maybe you can't read a whole lot about a pure New Testament church in the history books, but. That's because the imperial church took over and they are the ones who wrote the history books. The winners control the history, but you can look at prophecy and you can look at the promises of God and derive conclusions other than just what you can see in the official history books of that time. So that brings us to chapter 2 in this series on the Dark Ages, controversies about Christ. Enough time has gone on now in Christian history for people to begin to try to figure out a couple of things about Jesus Christ, and this raised major controversies that defined the course church history would take. Basically, in this episode, I'm going to categorize these controversies into two parts, and the first has to do with Jesus' relationship to the Godhead. And the second has to do with the nature of Jesus' humanity, or how His humanity and divinity were interrelated. Those are the two major categories, and there was a lot of discussion about both of those, and so we'll take the first one, we'll take them one at a time. Uh, Starting with the Trinity, Jesus' relationship to the Godhead. Uh, You know, I think we know now and take for granted that Jesus is divine most of us do anyway, but uh, we don't try to explain that divinity a whole lot. Uh, we, Most of us throw our hands up in the air and say, well, we can't really understand God, we can't understand the Trinity, and I think it's important to keep the mystery there, because without the mystery, there is no reverence. When you start to understand something, that's when you stop worshiping it. So, i don't think the human mind is fully capable of understanding god's nature and the relationship of the three distinct persons to the godhead and uh that's good that helps us in many ways when the mystery is intact our worship is intact but in the early centuries of christianity the christians wanted to know more and some of them were so dissatisfied with what they saw as gaps in the description of God in the Scriptures, that they tried to fill in the gaps and figure it out more. And so this one branch of thinking about the Trinity developed, and uh, it's, we'll use this umbrella term, monarchianism. Uh, it's developed from the idea of a monarch, and it, was, it sought to preserve the oneness of God, but it did so to the diminishment of his distinctiveness, of the distinction of the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And under monarchianism, there were two branches. And the first was easier to dispel with. It was called modalism, And it was the idea that the persons of the Godhead were really just modes of one person. In other words, there was just one God, and when you would see him as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, what you would see him doing is just playing three different roles. It's the same person wearing three different hats or something like that, three different modes, which is where the term modalism came from. Now, the problem with that ought to be obvious. There are several passages of Scripture that make it impossible to believe in modalism. For example, uh, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus is in the water with John the Baptist, and at the same time, the Spirit is descending like a dove, and a voice from heaven, which is the Father's voice, is saying, "'This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.'" all three of them are participating in the same event and so it's impossible for one person to be changing hats or something like that Uh, not to mention there are other occasions like that like the transfiguration of christ and also christ's prayers i mean how do you explain the prayer life of jesus if jesus is the same person as the father or the holy spirit And uh, he he distinguishes himself from the Father and the Spirit many times. So, modalism doesn't explain the Scriptures. It is a theory that should be easy to dispel with. Now, the second branch of monarchianism is harder to deal with. And one name for this is subordinationism. And subordinationism is the idea that the Father is fully God... But that the Son and the Spirit are lesser deities. They may be divine in some way, but not to the full extent that the Father is divine. And the major proponent of subordinationism is a man named Arius. In fact, he was so aligned with that idea that really more people know this idea as Arianism than they do Subordinationism. Now, a little bit on Arius. He was a presbyter or a pastor, you might say, in Alexandria. Alexandria was one of those capital cities that was very important to Christianity. You might remember from the last episode, there were major centers of Christianity, and in the west, they were Alexandria and Rome. In the east, Antioch, Constantinople, and later Jerusalem would be added to that list. Well, Alexandria was very important, an important center for learning in general, and an important center for Christianity, and there was a presbyter there, an elder, pastor, whatever you want to call him, preacher, named Arius, and he openly argued that Christ was created, that he wasn't on equal footing with the Father, he was a lesser god who had a different nature than God the Father. So, he was neither eternal nor omnipotent. Uh, He was the first created being and the greatest created being, but nevertheless, he was himself created. And he was very eloquent and clever with the way that he communicated these ideas. And he would say several things like, uh, The Son has a beginning, but God is without beginning. Or he would say, if the father and the son were equal christ would be called god's brother not his son and then another saying that is very familiar to arius was there was a time when he was not so he would say these things and he would even go so far as to put them to music creating these jingles that were very memorable and teaching them to children in schools who would go home and sing them to their parents and eventually his ideas were permeating the public consciousness, and people were beginning to think of Christ not as God, not as an eternal being, but as a created being. And this was a problem for those who respected Scripture in Alexandria. So, you might ask, you know, why was Arius' teaching so popular? And you have to remember that he was coming into a world that had largely been pagan not long before his day. And so there were a lot of converted pagans who liked this idea of Jesus as a lesser deity. It made sense to their sensibilities because it was hard for them to grasp the Christian belief that Christ existed from all eternity and that he was equal to the Father. It seemed more reasonable to them to think of Christ as some kind of divine hero, somewhere between God and creation, not quite God, not quite created, but somewhere in between those two things. Alexander, Bishop of Alexandria, took up opposition against Arius, alongside a deacon at the time who would become more familiar as time wore on, a man named Athanasius. Alexander and Athanasius asserted that Christ was eternal equal to the Father, and through the influence of these two guys, Arius was condemned at a provincial council called a Synod in Alexandria in the year 320. However, it wasn't the end of the battle, nowhere near it, because Arius had some very important friends, namely a Bishop of Nicomedia named Eusebius. This isn't, I don't think the very famous 4th century church historian by the same name, but uh, a different man, uh, also very powerful and influential, a bishop of Nicomedia named Eusebius. And so the battle continued to rage on about Christ and his relationship to the Godhead. This led to the first of seven ecumenical councils in church history known as the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. I'd say there are seven If you look at uh, Roman Catholicism, you'll see many, many more than seven official councils of the church. But there are seven ecumenical councils recognized by both strains of Christianity in the West, Roman Catholicism, and in the East, uh, Christian Orthodoxy. And so this was the first of seven. And um, the Emperor Constantine, who we talked about last episode was the one who brought everybody together for this he was concerned about the unity of christians and he wanted this settled this matter of the nature of christ's relationship to the godhead so uh this was raging pretty harshly in Nicomedia, where eusebius was the bishop so he called this council together in nearby nicaea like i said in the year 325 Reportedly, 318 bishops convened for this council, and these were guys who had just emerged from the persecuted church. So, the reports of the council described some of these men bearing disfigurements and marks of the persecution they received. There was one bishop who was said to have lost an eye because of torture, and another who lost the use of his hands because of torture. And so these were very respectable men, and there was an air of cheerfulness there and freedom as, for the first time, all of these men, these battle-worn bishops and church leaders, were able to convene without fear of the government. And uh, so there was a lot of good vibes going on at the Council of Nicaea because of this. A lot of people have this idea that Constantine presided over these proceedings And ran them and controlled them in some way. And a lot of popular fiction has has promoted that idea, which has no bearing in history. In truth, he opened the proceedings, reminding the bishops that they had to come to some agreement on the questions that were dividing them. And then he, he stepped aside, leaving the resolution of the conflict in the capable hands of the men who were there for that purpose and so they began to discuss this question was Jesus God and if so how do you distinguish him from the Father and the Spirit or was Jesus created and some kind of in between Uh, not quite God not quite creation but something in between a lesser deity as arian arianism espoused and in the discussion the bishops expressed the scriptures position on the son's status using Latin terminology developed ages before by a church father named Tertullian who lived in the second and third centuries he was a second century bishop from Carthage and he brought he was a lawyer as well and he brought Latin terminology into this discussion that had never before been used Tertullian was the man who coined the term Trinity. Trinity is not in the Bible, the word, the concept is, but the word describing the concept is not in Scripture. It was coined by Tertullian in his efforts to describe what the Bible is teaching us about God. Two other very important words that Tertullian started using and put into circulation were the words substance and Person. And these are the words that we use today when we talk about the Trinity. We say that God is three distinct persons in one divine substance, or sometimes we use the word essence, or nature. Now the word person, persona, originally had to do with masks worn by actors on the stage, but it also came to be used to represent person. Uh, people uh, or concerns in the courts of law. And it was a very good term, it was very flexible, because it didn't necessarily have to refer to a human being. It could refer to a human individual, or to a group, or some other entity that you know had to be tried in the courts of law. Uh, that made it very useful, because with regard to Jesus, you could be talking about a human being, but also a human being who was one hundred percent God and then of course when it comes to the Father and the Spirit you're not talking about humans you're talking about divine personalities person was useful for that reason and the word substance was also useful in the way that it could express God's essence or his nature so these words were being used and an important word in theology developed from this discussion and in Greek, the word is homoousios. Homoousios. Homo meaning same. Usios meaning substance. And so they began to speak of Christ as being of the same substance as homoousios with the Father. And the exact wording that came out of the Council of Nicaea was this that Jesus was true God of true God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father. Obviously, they came down on the side of Christ's deity, and Arius was on the losing side of the battle. So, you know, whenever you lost a theological battle back in those days, it wasn't that you just quit getting invited to lectureships or gospel meetings, but you were sent into exile. So, Arius was sent into exile and disappeared and While his ideas continued to be circulated, he, as a a person, lost his influence at that time. So the summary statement, if you want to summarize what came out of the Council of Nicaea, was that Jesus Christ is truly and fully God. That was the idea they arrived at at the conclusion of the Council of Nicaea in 325. However, the battle didn't end right then and there. You would think, an official council of the church involving 318 bishops. I think the reports were that only two, one of those being Arius, sided with the Arian position. Uh, You would think, with that kind of uniformity of agreement, they could move on to other debates and other things, but that's not the case. It didn't end after the Council of Nicaea. In fact, in many ways, the conversation just started. Um, Gregory of Nyssa wrote this about how the public dialogue had changed after the Council of Nicaea. He said, "...everywhere in the public squares, at crossroads, on the streets and lanes, people would stop you and discourse at random about the Trinity. If you ask something of a money changer, he would begin discussing the question of the begotten and the unbegotten. If you question a baker about the price of bread... He would answer that the father is greater and the son is subordinate to him if you went to take a bath the bath attendant would tell you that in his opinion the son simply comes from nothing so even the people the bakers the the merchants in the marketplace they were discussing this question as well everybody was talking about it in the streets is jesus god or is he a created being was Arius right were the bishops at the council of nicaea correct and Believe it or not, Arianism began to get some traction after the Council of Nicaea. Now, this deacon I told you about from Alexandria, Athanasius, later became Bishop of Alexandria, and he fought bravely to preserve the conclusions drawn at the Council of Nicaea. And sometimes he was on... Sometimes the trends were going with him, and sometimes they were going against him. Uh, He was... Banished from Alexandria no less than five times, and many times the authorities were searching for him, trying to imprison him, or exile him, or do away with him in some way. Uh, there's a story about how he was on a boat one time on a body of water, when somebody was looking for him, and um, they came up to him, not recognizing him, and asked him whether he knew where Athanasius was. And he didn't lie to them, but he said, "Well, he's not far away." So. Not far away. He was nearby, which he was, uh, but that's not quite what they were looking for, and he got away at that time. And a saying began to circulate about Athanasius Athanasius against the world. And there were times when he really was. Athanasius is important because he saw this debate about Christ's relationship to the Trinity from the beginning, almost all the way to the ending. Uh, He died before the Council of Constantinople in 381, where they uh, backed up the conclusions of the Council of Nicaea, but he saw it almost all the way to the end. Now, in the debate that uh, developed after the Council of Nicaea, some sought a softer Arianism by altering the language used at Nicaea, same substance, Homoousius. And they wanted to change it to homoiousius. I don't know if you can hear the difference in that. It's just in English the difference of the letter I. H-O-M-O-I-O-U-S-I-O-S. Homoiousius. Instead of homoousius. Homoiousius means similar substance. Instead of same substance. So Jesus is similar to the Father, but not quite the Father And Athanasius and others said that doesn't fairly represent the Scriptures. It's not good enough. It's not strong enough. And the debate raged on. Now it was, is it homoousius or homoousius? And it was so strong that the historian Edward Gibbon, who wrote the rise and fall of the the fall and decline of the Roman Empire, said that uh, the whole world was torn apart by a diphthong the whole world was debating over the letter i or iota in greek and it may have been a dispute over just one letter but that that little letter really meant a lot it was the difference between jesus being god or something less than god so they had the church had to settle this or it was going to be ripped in pieces now Other individuals came up on the side of the conclusions of the Council of Nicaea, these three so-called Cappadocian fathers. Cappadocia was Eastern Asia Minor, and uh, these guys were named Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa and Basil were brothers, and they also had a very powerful sister named Lucrina, and they were very influential, along with this Gregory of Nazi I have trouble with his name Nazianzus. And the three of them were able to influence a second council at the Council of Constantinople to establish the deity of Christ once more. And basically what they did at that council, among other things, which I'll get to in a moment, is reaffirm the language produced by the Council of Nicaea and strengthen the position of the Spirit, because at Nicaea they talked a lot about the Son, uh, but they didn't speak a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. But if Jesus is divine and can be divine alongside the Father while God remains one, then the Spirit must be divine as well. So they added to the language this statement about the Spirit, that He proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is together worshipped And together glorified you have to understand that the greatest contribution these councils gave to us especially the first two councils is that they preserved the mystery about the Trinity they didn't try to go farther than the scriptures in describing God and and so in my opinion the greatest contribution they gave to us is preserving the mystery of the Godhead as I said earlier that that's so important to our worship of God when we start to understand something that's when we cease to revere it and uh, they they did that and so um, not all of this language is explained like when it says Jesus is begotten of the Father we still don't know what that means begotten is not really explained. It shows that Jesus is Son, and there is God the Father, but it doesn't mean that Jesus was created, because it goes on to to make sure that we understand He's not created. It's basically a term used to distinguish the Son from the Father, and that's the way the word proceed is with regard to the Spirit. He proceeds from the Father. Well, how? We don't know But he is to be distinguished from the Father and from the Son. And that's as far as those terms begotten and proceed can go in our finite knowledge. We can't go any farther than that. So, Arianism received a swift blow, but it wasn't the end of it. Uh, During the time between the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, and I'll remind you those dates are 325 for Nicaea, 381 Constantinople, so several decades in there. Missions were made to the north, to the barbaric tribes, the Germanic tribes in the north. And those missionaries who went up north to spread the gospel were Arians. So after the fall of the Roman Empire, those Germanic tribes would come south and they would bring Arianism back for a rebirth in the church. Not only that, but we have... Uh, fairly strong denomination these days called the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are examples of modern day Aryans today. They believe Jesus is a created being and not equal to the Father. But that's the first major category about the controversies concerning Christ, Jesus's relationship to the Godhead. And the church, uh, the church consensus from those first two councils was, That Jesus is truly and actually really God. Now, there was a second controversy, and that second category had to do with the nature of Jesus' humanity. How did his humanity coincide with his divinity? And what's interesting about this particular debate is that it often fell along political lines, and the politics, you can't discuss this debate without discussing the politics involved, which again speaks to the shift in imperial church from persecuted church. Um, During the days of persecution, politics didn't have that much of an impact on the church, and now it was, which has a contaminating influence on the church. Uh, The political lines divided Christians in the West represented by the religious centers at Rome and Alexandria, from Christians in the East, represented by Antioch and Constantinople. Uh, And in Alexandria, the divinity of Christ was stressed over his humanity. And in the East, where Antioch and Constantinople is, church leaders tended to speak of the divinity of Christ being joined or associated with the man Jesus rather than being united with him and so the danger there was that the divinity of Christ was overshadowed by his humanity so generally speaking again in the West they emphasized his deity and in the East they emphasized his humanity and the best way to summarize this controversy on the humanity of Christ is to speak of it in terms of three major heresies attached to Three major uh, personalities who promoted those heresies. And the first heresy was connected to a man named Apollinaris. Apollinaris was a younger friend of an Athanasius, Athanasius and he, he saw, saw Jesus' humanity in this way. He related the divine and human in the person of Jesus in terms of psychology. And he argued that the Word, capital W, displaced the rational soul in Jesus' body. So, the divine kind of possessed the body of the man Jesus. And so, the problem here is that you have kind of a shell of a human, not a total human, possessed by the divine Christ. And opponents naturally objected to this, saying that the gospel pictures Jesus as a complete and genuine human, and he was able to have complete solidarity with humanity, and he needed that so that he could buy our redemption on the cross. You can't have a non-human dying for humanity on the cross. It was as Gregory of Nazianzus argued, what has not been assumed cannot be restored. So, Apollinarian teaching was effectively silenced at the Council of Constantinople, which we talked about in the last controversy. They handled this one as well, 381 AD. Now, the second heresy was associated with the Bishop of Constantinople named Nestorius. And Nestorius got into this by objecting to a popular designation of Mary as God-bearer or Mother of God. He said, that wasn't a good designation because it took away from the humanity of Christ and he pictured the relation between the two natures of Christ in terms of a conjunction or a merging of wills he would say rather than the essential complete union and he would often refuse to attribute to the divine nature the human acts and the sufferings of Jesus' life. He would say, you know, the divine was kept separate from the suffering. That was strictly the human nature. So he saw these two natures operating independently within the same person somehow. And Nestorius was condemned as a heretic at the Council of Ephesus, the third ecumenical council in 431 through the influence of the powerful Patriarch of Alexandria in the West named Cyril. And he was expelled from the capital and died in exile in Egypt in 450. And the sad thing about this is a lot of historians these days don't believe that Nestorius was ex- it was as extreme as the history reports him to be. It's like that thing we said in the last episode the winners write the history well it seems to be the case here that this was more a power politics at play where the West Rome and Alexandria won over the East Antioch and Constantinople and uh, those who stress the deity of Christ won over those who stress the humanity of Christ and Nestorius was a casualty of the politics involved there a lot of people say that Ephesus was um, not a good council, that it was an embarrassment to the church, and they want to want history to take a second look at Nestorius and maybe not even classify him as a heretic. Uh, anyway, that's another thing that went on. Then the third heresy we're going to talk about was led by a man named Eudicase. He was a spiritual leader of a monastery. We'll talk about monasticism in the next episode. But this monastery that he led was near Constantinople, and his heresy was addressed at the Council of Chalcedon near Constantinople in 451. Now, Eudicase he argued for one nature in Christ. He combined the two natures, the divine and the humanity, so completely that the human nature was all but absorbed he said it goes like this it's like a, a drop of honey in the ocean where the honey dissolves and you can't detect honey any longer that's what jesus's human nature was it was lost in the divine and so in doing that he denied a key prerequisite for redemption which is the full humanity of jesus christ he has to be human or there's no redemption so the council concluded that Jesus was complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. And that statement by the Council of Chalcedon in 451 sums up what the church consensus was in the 5th century on the humanity of Christ. He was complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Or as I hear it said more commonly today, Jesus was 100% divine and at the same time 100% divine. Human. So those three heresies uh, decided by three separate councils, uh, those three councils that we talked about, those summarize the debates that were going on about the human nature of Christ and how it related to his divine nature within the Godhead. And you may think that the early Christians argued too much about this. But these discussions were extremely important because they established the complete humanity of Christ after His complete deity had been accepted in the earlier councils. Uh, They were struggling with wording of Scripture that is very perplexing, wording like John chapter 1 verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, or Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, that Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. Or Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, that he was the image of the invisible God, or Revelation 13 verse 8, that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The scriptures attest to Jesus as God and man, and redemption doesn't work unless God himself took the initiative to save man and at the same time a man, Christ Jesus, died for the sake of humanity on the cross if christ is not the god man we are not saved so these discussions are so important because they establish all of that and they don't add to the scriptures but they simply explain or you might even use the word interpret what the scriptures had already been saying for centuries before that well that's a good stopping place and like i said Next episode, we'll get into monasticism, find out about the monks. But until then, this is Wide Margins.